In Romans chapter 7 we find astounding details of things concerning the sin nature. It is opportunistic, 8, deceptive, and it kills, 11, it causes confusion, 15, and results in hateful actions that are contrary to the desires of the new man, 18-20, it is an adverse negative law, 22, it wages war against the innate inclinations of the newman, and it uses the body as a tool for sins, 23, and it results in an agony of soul, permeating the Christian's walk with grief and woe, 24. Of course, with such an indwelling formidable foe, the sin nature, the church should give careful attention to what God says about it and how He dealt with it in the cross. This is why we will walk through this emancipating chapter of the book of Romans. Chapter 6 Background In order to get an understanding of the continued argument of Paul into chapter 7, we will have a look at the core matter of Romans chapter 6. There, Paul addresses two questions, the first one we find in 6-1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He proceeds to answer this question in BV.2-14. The gist of his answer is, that there is no such thing as those who have been united with Christ, having a license to live a lifestyle of sinning, the nature of salvation, as given in VV.2-12 precludes this idea. He concludes his answer to the first question with a statement in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace, which leads to the second question in 6:15. what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? This, he begins to answer in VV.16-23. In essence he continues with the nature of salvation, 2-12, but in a different manner. In VV.2-12 we are given the mechanics of salvation, how it works, and in VV.16-23 we are given the results of salvation, i.e. the results of the mechanics. In other words when the unification with Christ has happened, 2-12, it will result in a deliverance from the bondage of the sin nature and a subsequent righteous living, 16-23. So, what Paul does, is answer the second question in two phases. Phase 1, The Ontological Principle When the question arose, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? 6.15, Paul's response was to first deal with the ontological impossibility of someone, who has been truly saved, even desiring to live a lifestyle of sin. The very nature of a person is changed at salvation. This is what we mean by ontological. Changed from, I, being a slave to the sin nature, 17-20, to unto, 2, being a slave to righteousness, 16. 20-22. This is the new man which desires to live righteously, Romans 7 18 b 20, 22-23, cf. Ephesians 2 10, 4-24. In fact, so strong is this desire to live righteously that when believers find that they are unable to live this way consistently it brings about a deep internal struggle, 723-24. Phase 2, The Order of the Law. You will notice in VV.16-23 that Paul does not mention law in answering the second question about law, however, we find that he does so when starting with 7-1. Remember, the chapter divisions that we have today were not part of the original writings of Scripture, in essence Romans 7 is the phase 2 continuation of answering the question posed in 6-15. Therefore, we continue with chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. The outline of the chapter is as follows. 1. The dominion of the law, 1-3-2. The deliverance from the law, 4-6-3. The duality of the law, 7-12-4. The divinity of the law, 13-16-5. The duplicity of the saints, 17-24-A-6. The deliverance of the saints, 24-B-25. To jump a little ahead of myself, I want to allude to the extensive references to the law by the Apostle Paul. 
Here we have a chapter where a child slash wren of God finds him slash themselves with a sin nature running rampant in his slash their lives. The noteworthy thing that the Holy Spirit does, in addressing this problem, is teach about the law throughout this dilemma. Why? Child of God you can run hither and yonder and try to come up with answers as to why the saints suffer slash can suffer the bondage to sin, but the biblical answer is, they are in some way dabbling with law or laws of man in order to sanctify themselves, hence the Holy Spirit's strong emphasis on teaching about law. This boils down to the core of chapter 7, a misunderstanding of the law of God as to its purpose will result in catastrophic failure on the part of the saints. If the law of God cannot save or sanctify anyone, how much more the pitiful, supposedly spiritual laws of man? 1. The Dominion of the Law. Romans 7 1, Or do you not know, brothers for I am speaking to those who know the law that the law is master over a person as long as he lives. Or, a reminder that the teaching on law continues from chapter 6, even verse 15, to those who know the law. Since the letter is addressed to Gentile believers in Christ, we can conclude that the knowing of the law is, I, you have been taught the law, for it is a law belonging to the Jews, 9-4 and 2, they also knew the principle of laws from Greece, Rome, authorities, etc. law that is binding on its citizens. Law is master over, law emphatically dominates a people or a person, whether it's the law of God or any other law of man. We are under its jurisdiction for as long as we shall live. Romans 7 2-3, For the married woman has been bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. 3 So then, if while her husband is living she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress though she is joined to another man. Paul reaches down into the Mosaic law to make an example of this dominion of law over a person and he uses the context at earmarked situation of marriage. Though biblical principles of marriage are here extrapolated for purpose, we should note that it is not the Apostle's intention to give a dissertation on marriage. Scripture does deal with the subject in more detail, Matthew 5 31-32, 19-3-12, Mark 10-4-FF, 1 Corinthians 7 10-15. Greater than the act of dying to the law of God is something that must of necessity be supernatural in origin. The legality of the law concerning marriage reigns over the married woman as long as her husband is alive. A death has to occur for this legal hold to be nullified. Paul with acute intention latches onto certain aspects of marriage that will fit his intended goal, to talk about the law of God and then the cross of Christ, hence his focal point is on the fact that death has to occur in the marriage foul before a freedom from the law in relation to it can be experienced. 2. The Deliverance from the Law. Romans 7 4, So, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Sinner or Saint. The question rages on of whether Romans chapter 7 is about the plight of the pre-converted sinner or about the plight of the saint? I believe it is in reference to both. However, the applications to the pre-converted state, 1-3, 5, 7, are made so as to serve as prerequisites for explaining the errors, 8-11, that the post-converted, saints, make i.e. trying to keep the law, or even laws, as a means to sanctification. After the dominion of the law and the means whereby this dominion can be brought to an end was given, 1-3, Paul now proceeds to apply these principles to the believer. A. You also were made to die to the law. The law of God is likened to the husband from, 1-3, and believers are likened to the wife of, 1-3. Yet the type does not fit symmetrically but in principle. As sinners, we were bound by the law of God, under its just demands and condemnation, and the only way that we could be set free from it, in this regard, was for us to die. 
yet, even more than just die, but die to the law through Jesus Christ. The dying to the law was brought about by God, a relatively simple statement, but unfortunately, we miss the implications of such simple statements, we say, that's a rather obvious observation, but we reiterate, nonetheless, the act of dying to the law of God is something that must of necessity be supernatural in origin. The church cannot make people die to the law of God, no man on earth can make any man on earth die to the law of God, it is the prerogative of a thrice holy God, no man dares to place his polluted hands on this holy endeavor of God. It is God's law, it is God who has been offended. And it is only God who can make us die to His just demands. We read, made to die, it is a passive verb meaning that the subject brothers are enacted upon by an outside force which is God. b. Through the body of Christ. This grace of God, being dead to His law was brought about by Jesus Christ and Him crucified, not just Jesus Christ per se, but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, hence, made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Through the body of Christ comes from the mechanics of salvation as mentioned in chapter 6-2-11. In the cross of Christ, we have, I, atonement for our sins made, this is our justification. 2, a perfect law-keeping status, this is our justification and righteousness. And, 3, the bondage of the sin nature broken, this enables the child of God to live righteous, Paul's point in 6-16ff. The just demands of God's broken law having been fulfilled in Christ together with the bondage of sin broken at Calvary is the manner in which we were made to die to the law. The law's condemnation is no longer upon us and also the law is not the way of salvation but the Son of God is the way. See, so that you might be joined to another. The more one looks at salvation the grander it becomes or rather the grander and more majestic God becomes, for, it, salvation, is a system of astounding beauty and unparalleled purpose. Consider the phrase, so that, it begins an adverbial clause, which gives meaning or purpose to a previous action. The act, made to die to the law has an intended purpose behind it and that purpose was to make you, joined to another. The language, of course, is that of marriage. Before we could be married to Christ, we had to first die to our first husband, the law. This is the grace in which we stand, Romans 5 2, before we could stand in this grace the first husband had to be dealt with. d. To him who was raised from the dead. Doctrinally, if this subordinate descriptive clause was not found in the verse, it still would be a theologically sound presentation. However, the Spirit of God makes it necessary for Paul to write, to him who was raised from the dead. Again, we asked, why? We will answer with two points, I, the power of the cross, i.e. the resurrection refers to the inherent power in salvation, the Holy Spirit, and, two, the righteousness in the cross, i.e. the resurrection is the seal of God's approval on everything that the Son has done in his life and his death. I, the power in the cross. The clause, to him who was raised from the dead, goes back to the mechanics of salvation, 6-2-12. There we find a series of events pertaining to Christ's crucifixion which are contingent upon each other. In 6-3, we were made to unite with Christ in his death which was necessary so that the next step could happen, 6-4a to be united with him in his burial. This too was necessary so that in the next step, his resurrection, 6-4b, we too could be united with Him in it, we read, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This unification in the crucifixion of Christ has inherent power to it i.e. the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the power of the cross. It is this power that will let the child of God live free from the bondage slash s of sin. As Christ lived by the power of God, so too we will live our new lives by the power of God. This is the only grounds upon which the command do not let sin reign. 612, was, is given. 
the correlation between righteous living and the Holy Spirit's power is apparent, see also, 6 13b, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. 6-8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. 6-10-11, for the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God, 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, it is fitting and not a redundancy at all, that the one to whom the resurrected believer now, after the dominion of the law, belongs to is described in this fashion, to him who was raised from the dead, 7-4. 2. The Righteousness in the Cross. Remember, the issue is the just demands of the law of God upon mankind. The law of God demands that we live up to and maintain its perfect standard, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all, James 2:10, cf. Galatians 3 10. Of course, mankind cannot even begin to think of achieving a feat like this, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, Romans 3:20. enter Jesus Christ. Before he went the cross, he had to first live as a man under the law of God. He was a son of the law, Galatians 4:4c. For his entire earthly life, he lived under these demands of the law and obeyed it to perfection. In other words, throughout his life, Jesus extracted every ounce of righteousness from the law of God. This is where our righteousness comes from. Before he was to go to the cross, this issue of the law being kept perfectly by a human being had to be addressed first. In Romans 4:25, we read, He who was delivered over on account of our transgressions, and was raised on account of our justification. Why is the resurrection, and not the life and death, here, connected to our justification? The resurrection, the seal of approval. The fact that the resurrection happened is a testimony that, everything in the life of Christ, birth, life, death and burial, was accepted by God the Father. In other words, if there was sin in His life before the cross, or if the blood atonement failed in some way, the resurrection would not have happened. There are fantasies going around about Christ fighting demons and demons fighting Him on and after the cross. These fantasies are what makes believers place an unhealthy emphasis on the resurrection. The false premise is that Jesus Christ was defeated on the cross and was tortured in hell after his death, and after three days and three nights he became victorious over the powers of hell, hence the unhealthy emphasis on the resurrection. As stated, it is pure fantasy. In Acts 2:24 we read, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. The idea is not that death would even try to hold him but that it could not. Why? Because, the sting of death is sin, 1 Corinthians 15:56, and Jesus Christ had no sin. The resurrection is the seal of God's approval that the Son has done everything required of Him and He has done it in total perfection. Near the end of His earthly life, Jesus said, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and He has nothing in me, John 14:30. Not even one thing does Satan have on Christ. This is a perfect life. See also Romans 1 4. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, It is finished, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. John 19:30. That is, Father, all that you have sent me to do in life and in death, I have done it perfectly, it is finished. To recap, the resurrection is the seal of God's approval that the Son did everything as the Father wanted it. And so back to our text. We have been set free from the law, through the body of Christ, because in Christ we are, the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5:21, And we are assured of this, because if he had not obtained the righteousness from the law, he would not have been resurrected. So, we conclude that in the descriptive clause, him who was raised from the dead, we find this dual application, 1, the power to live a righteous life is only found in the cross and, 
2. The just and righteous requirements of the law is found only in the cross. e. In order that we might bear fruit for God. We have come full circle from chapter 6 16 to 22, where the point is that righteous living will be the result of the mechanics of salvation, found in 6 2 12. So, the purpose of, I, being made dead to the law is, so that, too, we can be made to belong to Christ, and the purpose of belonging to Christ is, 3. To have freedom from the just demands of the law and also to have the power of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, which of course results in, 4. In order that we might bear fruit for God. Conclusion The picture must be clear now, that just like salvation cannot be obtained by law and laws, likewise, fruit in salvation cannot be obtained by law or works of laws. Both instances are done and accomplished by the grace and power of God. To be continued. All scripture quotations are from the Legacy Standard Bible, LSB, unless otherwise indicated.